everyone. I'm Susie Sevier. And I'm Michael Barnhart. Welcome to the Adventures of a Real Estate Investor podcast, where we interview industry experts and chat with them about their passions and how they're leveraging real estate investing to create an impact in their world. What impact do you want to make? Did you know there are almost 8 billion people on this planet? What if each of us started with ourselves, with our family, in our community? All we have to do is start with a manageable 1% action every day. The effect of those billions of 1% gestures would be astronomical. This is your place to reflect and believe. Join us every week to start cultivating those ideas on the impact that you want to make in your world. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Adventures of a Real Estate Investor. I'm Susie. And I'm Michael, and we're excited you joined us for this adventure. So just a little life update. Michael and I have moved across the pond. We're back in Ohio. Well, not back in. Michael's back in. I'm here for the first time. But happy new year. New year, new you. Woo! Welcome to 2023, everybody. We're excited. First podcast of 2023. <laughs> <laughs> but if you listened to our last one, Michael and I are doing a three podcast series. We've done it in the past. We're doing it now. Now we're on episode two. Before we gave an update on like what the current interest rates were as of Q4 of 2022, and now today for episode two, we're going to chat about how inflation is affecting multifamily investments because that's what we love to talk about. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> Absolutely. And so just as a reminder for all of our listeners out there, our Ventress family, as I said in the previous episode as well, obviously Susie and I are not trained economists. However, we do read a lot about the economy and this is where all these updates come from, from various different sources. So I just want to list the sources at the beginning of this uh, this podcast here. So if you want to do your own research, you can go to these sources and you can do some research yourself. So some of the, some of the websites and resources that we use or look at uh, are as follows. CoStar, Marcus and Millichap, Capital Economist, The Federal Reserve, Freddie Mac, Moody's Analytics, Mortgage Bankers Association, National Association of Home Builders, National Association of Realtors, Pew Research Center, <laughs> Real Page Incorporated, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, and the Euro, U.S. Census Bureau, as well as well, Wells Fargo has published some economic data out there as well. To dive deep. That's right. Yeah, we do. It's it's very important that when you are talking about certain things, especially about the economy, which we're talking about today, it's very important that you have various different sources that you compile your data from, because when you just rely on one source. It could be skewed or opinionated in one one direction or the other. So it's good to have a well-rounded view of actually kind of what's going on, especially when a lot of economic data out there is just kind of based on models that economists do, models in predicting and things like that. So it's good to have a well-rounded view. Anyways, that being said, <laughs> let's get into the consumer price index. So for November of 2022, because December hasn't come out yet, November 2022, the consumer price index which measures a wide baskets of goods and services rose just 0.1% from the previous month of October, 2022, and thereby increased by 7.1% from a year ago. So inflation measured, technically measured from the CPI is 7.1%, um, which was reported by the labor department in December. So economists, as well as the federal government had been expecting it to increase by about 0.3%, in November, thereby making it about a 7.3% rate of inflation for the past or the previous 12 months. Um, so this is a good thing because now inflation has decreased from what the federal 
government and economists were kind of predicting by about 2% increase, a decrease. So 7.3, and now it's actually 7.1%, which is cool. So surprisingly, there was actually a substantial decrease in energy costs, such as gasoline, oil, electricity, and then like piped gas as well, while food costs had increased. So obviously, the, we all know the price of avocados is significantly increasing. <laughs> we'll see that in inflation as well. But anyways, because of this, the federal government decided to continue to increase rates, albeit at a reduced rate of only 50 BIPs or 0.5% in December of 2022. Now, I won't get into all the specifics about that here on this podcast because we talked about it in depth on our last episode. So go please check out our last episode if you want to learn more about what the government did with increasing its rates and how that infected affected current interest rates. Also infected. (laughs) But just for comparison between the US and UK economy, because the Bank of London, Bank of England kind of like controls, I wouldn't say controls, but has a big influence of the global market and the, you know, the strength of the dollar and things like that. So like inflation in the UK eased in November to only 10.7%, while it was above over 11% for the previous months. And actually, um, contrary to what's happening in the US, a majority of their inflation was due to energy costs stemming from the war in Ukraine. Because a lot of that energy is brought in from Russia to Europe, which is actually driving energy costs up in the UK and across Europe and as well. I mean, if you want to learn more about that, please feel free to reach, reach out to me or Susie, because we definitely experienced a 500% increase in energy costs while we were actually at the tail end, <laughs> at the tail end of, of our stay over in England. But anyways, Susie, how is the consumer price index or thereby inflation, how is that really driving trading velocity these these days. I'd love to chat about it. (laughs) So the trading velocity is starting to settle after a record-setting stretch. So basically, the amount of multifamily real estate deals being purchased have eased. So if you are new into the multifamily space, you will have, like, if you look back at people's portfolios who, you know, bought and sold during that time, you will see, like, very, very high IRRs up in the hundreds just because a lot of like selling and buying was happening in a compressed or short amount of time. But that's all come to slow growth, right? Like meditation, you got to breathe in and breathe out. Yay. <laughs> but so rent growth is finally normalizing after the high-flying markets of 2021. Now that they're all returning to earth, right? Like we went up to space and now we're back down, thankfully. So after totaling more than 72,000 units of net absorption during the second half of the year, places like Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Las Vegas, and Phoenix, all of those super, super hot markets had a combined negative measure in the opening six months of 2022. And that's a big deal because during that time, like, and in those high flying markets, builders also went buck wild, right? Because they're like, oh my gosh, we need more apartments. And so they were building in these primary markets. And because of that, they created some pockets of oversupply during a temporary reduction in demand. But why was there a temporary reduction demand, right? Like, because it's all weird how it happened so fast. And it's because some residents like rebalanced their living costs after these huge hikes, because you all with the like purchasing and the selling like rent increases were going crazy. And so a lot of people were like, wait a second, like, do I want to spend most of my paycheck on rent? 
Or do I want to spread it out throughout other things? Like, is it worth living with my family? Is it worth living with friends? Just like buying a home, it was the same exact thing with renting an apartment or people decided to live together. Either way, there was too many places that were built, which also creates a big deal. So activity across all markets finally started to pull back in the second and third quarter of 2022 as interest rates started to rise. Yet deal velocity remained higher than before the pandemic. So again, like there was a lot happening and (laughs) it just felt like every day you had no idea what was going to happen. It was like every single night it was like, okay, did I make the right decision today? Which usually actually is something we talk about a lot, but it was going by so fast that that like it created a lot of anxiety or a lot of excitement with people. However, cities where, where the cost of living was still very affordable because it didn't happen everywhere. It only happened in those super hot metropolitan markets. So in places like in the Midwest, so such as Cincinnati, Des Moines, Madison, Omaha, as well as Oklahoma City and Tulsa, they still showed notable momentum. And that is really one reason that we love Oklahoma City and Tulsa is because it seems pretty steady. We we really like there, (laughs) you know, it doesn't go out of its way to create a lot of anxiety in my life. And I'm really excited about that for now. (laughs) So as far as cap rates go, we are not seeing the compression that we saw in 2020 and 2021. And the data for 2022 hasn't come out yet, but preliminary data suggests that cap rates have mostly plateaued across markets while others have slightly compressed and decompressed. And this is really just part of the real estate market cycle. This will happen again and then again and again. We just don't know when. And so this is just something it's like learning all of this and knowing what will happen for next time or what could happen for next time is good. It's good to like understand it and kind of just recognize like, oh my gosh, will this happen again? Yeah, absolutely. And so just to kind of touch on a couple of things that Susie mentioned here, one thing I want to point out is what we saw in 2008 during the that crisis, 2008, the Great Recession. Susie had mentioned there has been some oversupply. This is a very brief amount of oversupply. This is not because builders are still very skeptical of building, unlike that they were, you know, leading up to the, the everything that happened in 2008, 2009, right? 2000, well, 2007, 2009, right? So like, we're not we're not seeing these massive oversupply issues or anything like that right now. What we're what Susie is mentioning, just brief pockets of oversupply because of the 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 high net absorption that we saw in this in during 2021. So, anyways, as they're as builders were trying to move to those markets to build quickly, it was just causing brief pockets of oversupply. That's what she's talking about there. We're not we're not seeing massive amounts of oversupply, which we saw in 2000. 7, 2008, 2009. So, yes, because anyway. as you'll see, like in the news, right? Like, there's still, we're still talking about how there's a housing shortage. So, just to keep that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, just to give you a brief snapshot of the US economy as it stands in December 2022, January 2023, the US economy still has substantial muscle despite having two consecutive negative GDP releases. The US had a positive GDP re- report for Q3 of 2022. And the preliminary data for Q4 2022 also show a very positive GDP report as well. So we're looking forward to that coming out shortly, but it is positive looking at the preliminary data. Uh, Additionally, the Federal Reserve maintains an aggressive fight against inflation, though their pace appears to be cooling as we saw in December of 2022. And I I talked more about this and raising rates and stuff like that in the previous episode. So please go check that out as well. So what I want to talk about is that 
as Michael mentioned, it appears to be cooling. How though, right? And it is cooling because there is sustained job growth at a very low unemployment, which provides the Federal Open Market Committee with confidence. It gives them a lot of confidence to elevate borrowing costs without derailing the economy. And this is something I really want to talk about because in the last six months on the news, we saw crazy headlines about, you know, unemployment, job growth, layoffs, all of the above. So I want to chat about that a little bit. So in July of 2022, employment gained blue pass estimates with the addition of 528,000 jobs, bringing the calendar year total to over 3 million new positions filled. That's huge. And then, you know, a little bit forward to October, it grew by 261,000, which is actually very similar for November, which had 263,000. But as many of you may remember, the only thing that was talked about in November was no job November. And this is important to discuss because many of the large job cuts were coming from tech companies. And a lot of economists believe that these job cuts were an indicator of the end of hyper growth for tech companies. So it was pretty much like a war for talent. And because of this war for talent, it led some companies to hire too fast and spend too much money. And we all know what happens when you do that in your personal life, with friendships, with business. It doesn't matter. Like a lot of things, what goes up must come back down and vice versa. So while other industries aren't seeing cuts like this and did not see cuts like this. They created signs of anxiety amongst those who were still employed and had many people thinking a recession will happen. So this is always like a huge reason to double check anything that you ever see. Because when I was reading about No Job November, it did not really ever specifically talk about tech jobs, which really did freak a lot of people out. I had my friends talking about it. I had my family members talking about it. And so just like look a little bit further, right? Because a lot of jobs still went online. And although there still were a lot of layoffs, like there were a lot of great things happening. And from a big point of view, that's what helped everything cool down. And I love that. So like with all of that information, Michael, like what is the future outlook, right? For multifamily based on this data? Yeah. So these data are indicators of various different things for multifamily. And so because the federal easing of federal easing of their quantitative tightening. Who say that through time? Yeah. Even since our last episode recording, Freddie Mac has actually reduced their rates again for small balance loans, this time by an additional 30 bips or 0.3% on 19 December, 2022. So this is a total of 0.5% decrease over the last month. And it has been expected that it will continue to fall through 2023 because Although the federal government is still increasing the rate, they only increased it, they decreased the amount that they're increasing it by. So the future outlook for fixed rate mortgages is looking very bright, if you will. And so we expect that those rates will continue to, to fall throughout 2023. Because, yeah, so I'm very excited. So because we're seeing rates fall already, we believe that the pricing guidance for multifamily might stay at or slightly below what they currently are, which has come down a bit, but not much since the Fed began raising rates. Therefore, it is possible that deal flow might slow in the future. We are seeing deal flow slow a little bit as we did in, you know, the second half of 2022, basically. We do, we do continue, we do expect that to continue to slow a little bit in the near term, 
amidst these obstacles, which could lessen the downward pressure on cap rates as the market retreats from the historical trading levels that Susie mentioned skyrocketing into space. Now it's coming back down to earth, right? So overall, multifamily has strong fundamentals such as the ability to turn over leases on a typical basis of 12 months, which is the beauty of multifamily, right? Which is favorable during periods of high inflation, which should bolster buyer interest. Okay, with that being said, there's a brief um, little conclusion there about how multifamily is affected based on the, the data that we shared. Now, now I kind of want to reiterate kind of what we are doing or how we are approaching acquisitions during this time. We did mention that pretty much the same thing on the previous episode, but if you didn't listen to that, I just wanted to share it here as well. So Susie, you want to talk about what's one thing that we're doing for our acquisitions during this time? Yeah, so we're still actually looking for acquisitions. And I think that's something to really like think about and talk about because you hear so much of the scarcity mindset from the news, but like you find deals at all times of the market cycle. You can't wait until things get great because then everybody's going to be in the market at the same time. So although we are taking our time and making sure that the deals really do work, we are still very actively looking because there are diamonds everywhere and we're here to find them. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> so in addition to taking our time, like we always do take our time, we underwrite slow, just like the mantra, right? Like hire slow, fire fast. We also like to acquire slow as well. So anyways, Susie mentioned we're taking our time and everything that we're doing is, is approaching lending from a long-term financing position, meaning that we're looking for luxury rates for a long period of time. Yeah. yeah so. We don't like the scariness, right? So like you, we saw a lot of bridge loans happening in 2020. And now that they're coming due, interest rates are super high. And because that kind of anxiety is something that I don't want to experience, long-term financing for us is the way to go. Yeah. What do they say? Date the rate and... Date the rate and marry the property. There you go. <laughs> date the rate and marry the property. Yeah. Even if you get a fixed rate, you can always refi, but a fixed rate allows you to be able to model or underwrite and project for a long period of time while having... A variable rate is very, very can be very difficult to underwrite to based on the fluctuation that we're having right now with interest rates. Yeah, so we're also looking at five year or plus five year plus deals, and we always have been looking at that. We always like long term deals, just because that affords us the flexibility to kind of exit whenever it makes the most sense for our investors. Absolutely, and then. Always looking for that value add or opportunities to force appreciation. Michael and I are not, you know, in the scary territory of dilapidated buildings. We're not, we're not trying to do that. We're trying to do like really great value add plans where we're really giving the residents like a opportunity to be a part even of the value add plan. Even though they don't know it, we are giving them those opportunities by choosing like what they want to upgrade during rent increases, what amenities we're adding to the property. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, with with opportunities of force appreciation, we are looking more at B-class assets. That is because they typically require, they have a lot less deferred maintenance. And there's also the opportunity to not necessarily force appreciation through like, you know, renovations and, and rent bumps that way, but also looking at ways to force appreciation through operational things. Because we have now operated multiple properties and we know where we can 
decrease our expenses to then increase our income or increase our net operating income to increase the value of the property. And so B-class assets offer that as well. So we're looking at ways we can increase operational efficiencies there. We are, of course, also looking at C-class assets for sure. However, because of the price of labor, the price of goods and services and things like that has gone up with inflation, we are still increasing the amount of contingency that we have on these properties. So sometimes the C-class properties are difficult to underwrite to because we're having up to upwards yeah, of- so much fluctuation. Yeah. And there's, we're having upwards of 30% contingency um, on our CapEx budget. So if we have $100,000, 30% would be $30,000, right? And while we used to only underwrite to about 10% contingency. So sometimes it's difficult for those C-class properties to really underwrite to where we like them. However, there are still, there's definitely still out there. But we, like Susan mentioned, we're looking at B-class assets very heavily right now, especially during this time. Yeah. So, and a another cool thing about B-class properties is like when people can't afford to move into a house or buy a house any anymore because of the higher interest rates, people who typically live in homes are going to be looking at, you know, the transition when you move from a home to an apartment complex is typically going to be the lateral transition, which will be to a B-class asset or maybe even an A-class asset. So yeah, not necessarily all the way to the C-class. So anyways, we hope you found value in this episode uh, and we're looking forward to providing you one more market update in this series of three episodes here. So until next time, explore more Adventure Awaits. Thank you so much for listening. Before you start your next adventure of the day, please take a moment to reflect on the impact that you want to make. All of our efforts combined are what make the monumental impacts. We can't do it without you. Also, if you enjoyed the episode, please head over to iTunes and leave us an honest review with one of the great insights you received from the show today. And if you believe a friend, family member, or colleague would find great value in listening, please share our podcast with them. As always, your support means the world to us. Until next time, explore more. Adventure awaits. Woo!